Hello. Hello, John. How are you? Hey, Dan Benjamin. Shamalama. What's up way up there? Ooh, boy, busy day. It's a beautiful day here in Seattle. Yeah, what's the weather? Well, it's just it's kind of sunny and crisp. Mm-hmm. You know, crisp is a word that we use up here mm. when it's sunny, but a little a little cool. Right, sure. You know, I'm out there in short sleeve, but it's a little crisp. And so like, uh, what's there, the actual what's the actual temperature? Oh, gee, you want to get technical? Yes, uh, well, let's see. Weather, let's see what the thing here says. It's data. 63 degrees. Yeah. And today, uh, it's looking like the high is going to be 70 in the late afternoon, or you know, starting about three or four, it's going to get up to 70. So. That's pretty good for us. Sounds the same as here. It was 60, upper 50s this morning, 70 now. Yeah. Beautiful. Yep, yep. We're living living the dream. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's busy around here. We got some tractors going out in the back. But I was over, you know, I'm, li- I'm living at my house now. That was the first thing I was going to ask you. Tell me about this. Where are you safely ensconced in your new fortress of uh, solitude, your sanctum, sanctorum? Pretty, pretty ensconced. I mean, it's hard to say that I'm, that I really am safe anywhere, Dan. Because, <laughs> I feel like you create the danger. That's right. I'm Other people are in danger. Pursued. You're safe. You're safe. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm living there, but of course I have a lot of life over here at the house mm-hmm. at, uh, at the, you know, at, um, my daughter's mother's partner's house. Right. And you know, one of the things I have here is my podcast studio. Although I'm able to take my laptop uh, on the road, as mm-hmm. it were, mm-hmm. and and record from the comfort of my bed in my new house. Right. But last night, I looked at, at my computer and I was like, oh, well, because this morning I had a window washer come. And, you know, window washing is a thing that I realized You know, if I were to do it myself, if I were to say, I'm going to wash all the windows in my house, um, it would be the same as saying, I will never wash the windows in my house Uh because it's just not a thing that I would ever do. And, and the windows in my house right now might are, are very dirty because they haven't been washed since the construction. They're covered with a kind of film of sawdust and, you know, the outside, it's all covered in kind of mud and, and, um, and a, a, a few years ago when I was selling the farm, it turned out that there was a, a window washer guy who was kind of also a rock and roll guy. And it's funny to me because a good friend of mine from high school, in fact, the guy that I, that I first set out hitchhiking across America with Kel McCarl, Kel ended up owning a window washing business. And I think window washing is a thing that, you know, it's a kind of entrepreneurial uh, space, mm, for if sure. you will, for yeah. someone that's in the rock and roll life, somebody that's, um, that's you know, kind of been, uh, been up and down with the Rolling Stones. Uh, because it's not, you know, it's not a job that um, requires a lot of advanced degrees, but it is a meticulous one, even an artistic one. And I think profoundly meditative one. So I hired this guy to wash the windows on the farm before I sold it. And it was this amazing experience. It was not, I mean, relative to the pain in the neck of it, 
it was not a large investment. And uh, the windows were just like, wow, why didn't I do this years ago? Like it just, they just shine, you know, they're, you, you can see right through them. There's no gunk on them. And, um, and the, and the window washer himself was a very enjoyable character. So the whole thing, it was kind of like when Psalm was working on my house, it was just someone who came in for one day, made the house incredibly good. Mm. You know, like the, the effect of it is much larger than the, than the, um, expense. And so I, reached out to the same guy again. Like I've got this house. I'm, you know, it's not like I'm going to get my windows washed every year, but like it's, it feels like one of the things you do in order to move into your house, you fix the gutters and you wash the windows. Well, my rock and roll guy has, you know, has transitioned out of the space, but he sent uh, a friend or he recommended me to a friend and the window washer shows up today and I just liked him immediately. He's a, a small guy, a ginger guy. And, um, although we both had masks on, you could just mm-hmm. tell that he's got, he's got flavor. He's got some tattoos. Yeah, sure. He's wearing a pair of extra tufts standing at the door and he's basically standing next to the identical pair of extra tufts that belong to me. Uh-huh. Stan- you know, I was just like, I, I didn't note, I didn't note them to him and he didn't note them either which was a, f- a form of cool, I thought. And then he came in. The first thing he said was, I really like the kind of 70s vibe you've got going on in here. <laughs> but he's only 24. Was so, he correct in his identification of the time period of your decor? For the, From the standpoint of a 24-year-old walking in and looking at the space and going like, I really like the 70s vibe you've <laughs> got, he was dead on. Right. Now, if it, if it was a... If it was a 50 year old who walked in and said that I would go, okay, what do you mean by that? Mm. You know, like that a 50 year old would have to have a little bit more of a nuance take, but a 25 year old to even notice, mm-hmm. let alone like get in the ballpark. I mean, 25, you would have been born in 1980, no, 1990, 95, 95. Right. right. So he's, he's identifying a style that that is 20 years before he was born Mm -hmm. accurately based on not very many clues. Cause the house is still, you know, I, I, you could not, you would not walk in and say, Oh, he's fully moved in. You know, there's boxes all over. There's stuff leaning against the walls. So he picked up on a, he picked up on just a couple of things and was like, Hey, so I immediately was like, well, I trust you with the house, you know, go to town. And then I was trying to, I was downstairs trying to, you know, take some boxes cause, cause Dan, this whole project from the very beginning has been about moving as a way of getting rid of stuff and moving as a way of, of, um, my dad always said, there's no such thing as a geographical cure. And what he meant was you can't run for your problems, right? You can't, mm. there's no geographical cure for alcoholism was, was the first thing he meant. Mm -hmm. And then there's no geographical cure really by extension, um, to any of your, uh, any of your nagging problems. And I, and I knew that two, three years ago, whenever I started down this path of like, you know, I think it's time to sell my house and move. And Mm -hmm. my daughter's moved down into the suburbs. You know, this is all, it was, it was not quite, like moving to a new state for work, 
but it was an opportunity. And my head has been ringing through this whole period. Like there's no such thing as a geographical cure. And yet a change of geography, a change of scenery. I mean, there are opportunities. The cure isn't moving, but moving can be part of the process of, you know, of, um, growing. So I always thought that leaving the farm and moving into the new house would be, you know, would be passing through an ever smaller, you know, grade of filter at each point, you know, at least packing up the farm. It was just like a, it was a, basically I was running gravel through a filter mm-hmm. and somewhere in the middle there, you know, the gravel kind of turned to coarse sand and now I'm nowhere close to fine sand. I'm still at the, I might, I'm somewhere between pea gravel and coarse sand uh-huh. <laughs> in terms of the, the, the grade of filter that I'm using to push stuff through. And today I opened a box and I'm there and it's like, I've got my dad's binoculars Mm -hmm. from World War II. (laughs) Now my dad's binoculars from World War II are a thing that I'm never going to get rid of. How do you get rid of your dad's 1942 Bushnell Navy issued binoculars? I'll tell you how. I'll tell you how. You pass it. You receive them. Then you pass them away and leave it uncertain as who they're supposed to go to. And then they wind up being put in a box and donated. That's the way you get rid of it. <laughs> and I don't know whether, whether my daughter will eventually, you know, as a middle-aged woman <coughs> say, these were my grandfathers, you know, at a certain point they, they, they t- transmogrify uh-huh. from being useful as a binocular to being a, an item, you know, like if I on had a shelf my, or a display piece, a museum right, piece. Yeah. Right. They're no longer, you're I not going to, you're not going to grab those and like go bird watching with them. Probably not. Mm-hmm. You know, you could go on, on, uh, Amazon right now and probably buy a, a pair of plastic binoculars for $40 that, that gave you at least as much amplification, if not you know, the thing about these is they're all these glass lenses. I mean, they're beautiful things and maybe the quality of the, of the light through them is, is not, uh, replicable, but probably the actual magnification of a thing and, and, and the, and the wide angle of the the view is probably improved by technology. But these, these binoculars, my dad had with him his whole life and when he was the chief counsel of the Alaska railroad, the binoculars sat on the windowsill in the law library and my dad's office at the railroad. If you look at the Alaska railroad building, the old Alaska railroad building, my dad's office was on the top floor, third floor. And it was the whole left side of the building because the legal office was a huge part of running a railroad and he had, he had, you walked into his suite of offices and there was a receptionist. There were two offices to the left that were his, like the other lawyers that worked for him. And then you walked in through the door and there was, and he had the corner Mm -hmm. 
and a, his big desk behind it and a little sign on the desk that said a clean desk is the sign of a sick mind. And he had, you know, certificates in frames and big mm-hmm. paintings and all this stuff on the walls. And then there was a door out of his office to the right that led to the league legal library, which was three entire rooms, enormous rooms mm-hmm. all the way to the back of the building full of the law books of the Alaska statutes and the federal statutes, you know, back, back when the law was contained in books. And then in the back of the law library, there was a walk-in safe that had at one point in time, I think was there to hold all the gold dust or whatever that they used to run the railroad. Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> and at, at this point he put, I don't know what he put in there. He never locked it. So I can't imagine that, can't imagine what, what the difference between the papers in the safe and the papers outside the safe were. But as a, as a kid, I loved this safe. It was a big safe and old timey, you know, the building was old and it was an old timey safe, but he kept the binoculars on the windowsill back in the, in the back corner. And you could sit there and survey the entire Alaska railroad switching yard from the back window. But also Elmendorf air force base was right up at the top of the hill across. So that hill was called government hill or is still called government hill. And so from the window, you could sit with the binoculars and watch originally the F four phantoms come in and out of Elmendorf. And then after about 1981, Mm -hmm. um, it switched to F 15s, but also every other thing that went in and out of Elmendorf, the C one forty ones, the C one thirties, like there were planes coming and going all the time. And so, you know, I used to go down there and sit in a chair and it was like absolute heaven because I'd be watching the trains (laughs) through the binoculars switching around in the yard and, and all the, the, uh, you know, the brakeman out jumping around and the, you you could, you could see all the way over to the, to the sheds where they actually did repair work on the locomotives. Mm -hmm. And then there'd be an airplane. And so I'd switch over and, and watch the F fours or the F 15s come and go. Sometimes they would be, they would be um, taking off in full afterburner because they would be intercepting a Russian bomber. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when, a, when, when two F-4s take off in full afterburner, it is a, it's a real event. You know, the whole city um, could, not, could not like ignore the fact that these two jets were leaving town because, you know, it just, it shakes you the, the, uh, the fillings in your teeth, Mm. those were very loud airplanes and, and, you know, full afterburners, just like, and so thrilling to watch through the binoculars. Cause you could see right up the, you could see right up the, to the hot center of the engines. Mm, That's cool. But also if you turned to the left from that window, you could see Mount Susitna, you could see, um, you know, you should, you could see out over the water. And 
that's also where every little small plane in the in Alaska is kind of coming or going. Merrill Field was over to the right. And so every little 172, every little, you know, beaver, uh, they were all coming and going and they were all flying up and down. And anyway, I spent so much time with these binoculars and the binoculars had little yellow filters that you could snap in little kind of amber filters in case you, you were trying to look straight into the sun, um, which weren't very useful, but they were, that they were an additional feature. Well, so what am I going to do with these? All I can do is treasure them, save them forever, <laughs> look through them periodically and, and, you know, look out the window through them and go, is that a Robin? Why? Yes, it is. I could have seen it with the naked eye, but at some point along the way, Dan, mm-hmm. I encountered a pair of binoculars that were identical to my father's Navy binoculars. I found them at a thrift store. Someone else's father had brought them back from someone else's Navy, but their father died or they didn't, they didn't use to watch the F four phantoms, uh, take off on on an intercept through their father's binoculars, or even if they did, it didn't resonate with their heart quite the same way. And they took those binoculars to the thrift store where I found them. And when I found them, I said, how can I possibly pass up these wonderful world war two era binoculars Mm -hmm. identical to my father's in every respect, except I know every dent and paint chip in my dad's binoculars, I would never have any difficulty looking at the two and telling which was which. So I bought them. Now they weren't expensive. They were a thrift store find. They're in good condition. And the idea was that now I had a pair I could use. I would put my dad's (laughs) up on the shelf. Even though the, they're, you know, I have not ever gone on eBay and looked to see if these binoculars have any value. Of course they don't. Right. The world is full of people's old dented hammers. Right. Nobody cares about anything anymore. Um, so why, so I'm just preserving my dad's binoculars for some reason. Right. And, and for, I think before I had a child, the justification I often used was, you know, I'll just, or in, in my heart, what I said was, I've got to save these for, to pass down to future generations. And I think maybe I imagined in my night, in my thirties that I was going to have 10 boys. I was going to have, eventually have 10 sons and they would all be <laughs> fighting over my dad's old Navy binoculars. Right. Um, it turned, turned out I did not have 10 sons or at least so far I haven't, you know, life is long. Well, I mean that you know of, I, well, pretty sure if I had 10 sons, it's, it's conceivable. I have a son Mm -hmm. that I don't know about, Mm -hmm. although probably not Mm -hmm. given how well I know all of the potential mothers. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone's hiding a son from me, but 10 sons. No, 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 no. No chance of that. And so now I, you know, I have a daughter and she's 10 and it's, and the jury is still out on whether or not she's going to be sentimental about her grandfather, who she never met, 
um, her grandfather's uh, binoculars from World War II, which by the time she's a grown-up will be as distant from her imagination as the freaking Civil War was mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about this the other day because I was um, I was watching a, a like a an old newsreel, you know, not newsreel, but an old like sort of black and white film pre pre sound film from that was made in 1901 and i and i was thinking about it like oh this was 120 years ago you know um which seemed like a really long time 120 years ago Mm -hmm. but it was from 1901 which to me at least sort of felt like well that wasn't that long ago 1901 i mean my my grandmother was already um you know she was like uh, like in uh, deep in high school in 1901. So, you know, I knew I, I, in the course of my life, I have known a lot of people who were alive in 1901. So it doesn't seem, I mean, they're all obviously long dead, but 1901, it just doesn't seem like 120 years ago. Wow. That just feels like so much longer ago. And then I realized that when I first became aware of time, Um, when I was about seven years old and I Mm. first understood that uh, about time and that my father had once been young and that (laughs) when my father was young, it was an earlier time when they didn't have television and Mm -hmm. they, um, and he fought in a war and here are some pictures of the war, all these movies that we love watching with the, with the propeller airplanes, like they're all in black and white because they didn't have color <laughs> mostly in the past. You know, that in 19, 1975, when I was seven, these were all ideas I could kind of, I could kind of grok for the first time. And at that age, just in my lifetime, which I still, this is the amazing thing about being in your fifties, you know, time is, very compressed. I don't feel any different really from the person I was when I was 10. Mm -hmm. But in 1975, 120 years ago was 1855. Wow. Pre-civil war. Mm -hmm. Um, not just pre-civil war, but like, like a whole different universe. I mean, 1855 was, like there was still a gold rush in California. Right. And that's when the idea of how long a hundred years ago got fixed in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in my head, a hundred years ago uh, is Little Bighorn. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And. I can, I, I'll never be able, I don't think fully to adjust that sense of what a hundred years represents. Right. But it's not, it's not a hundred years anymore. That was like the 1870s, right? Well, yeah, a little big horn, 1870. So, so let's take 1976. Was I right? Was Was I, I guess the 1870s, I was right. You did. You were absolutely (laughs) right. Absolutely right. (laughs) Um, 
1976 was a huge year for people my age because it was the bicentennial. And the country, the United States, just celebrated the bicentennial the whole year. Mm-hmm. And also it was the uh, it was a presidential election year where Jimmy Carter was elected president. Mm-hmm. I remember that. And also it was an Olympic year. Um, so the 1976 Olympics were, you know, a kind of a big, it was a big deal. It was, um, it was the Olympics in Montreal. And so, you know, it was like, uh, it was, it was when the Olympics still really mattered. Yeah. It was, it was culturally like, it was all anybody talked about. Um, and also the U S bicentennial and also an election year. I mean, it was just, it was so packed that, that year and that summer in particular, because that 4th of July was, um, was just bananas. That was the 4th of July that, that the whole country just went off the rails and, and Boston, you know, reenacted the tea party. I mean, it was, it was an earlier idea of what, America was and what the revolution was and, and, um, and there was, you know, it was very uncomplicated take on and and a very uncomplicated celebration of like 200 years of America. Uh, even though in 1976, you know, stuff had been haywire in, in, uh, you know, not, not just haywire, like on the, um, on the fringe of popular imagination, but things were haywire really central to the popular imagination. And that's why everybody, everybody went crazy for it because Mm -hmm. it was like, let's all come together. Like America, it's still a thing. Like don't get all bogged down in Vietnam and, and race riots and, you know, like get back together and have a good old time. So for, a what was I? Eight, eight years old then. I remember that year very vividly and many, many things that year very vividly. And a hundred years ago, because we were talking about it all the time, 200 years ago is when our founding fathers brought, you know, forth onto this continent, a new nation. (laughs) That's, that's correct. I feel like I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, so, so we were all, all of us kids were, were being asked to imagine 200 years ago, 200 years ago, 200 years ago. And 200 years ago is a very colorful time with all these high stockings and wigs and muskets and colorful characters. So a hundred years ago was also something that you had to imagine. And a hundred years ago at the time, 1876 was little Bighorn, but it was also reconstruction in the South. You know, the, the civil war was over. I mean, it, it was fraught time for sure. Industrial mm-hmm. revolution, Queen Victoria. And uh, it's just, it's fixed in my mind a hundred years ago. It was a, you know, it was a time when the railroads crossed America and it was the old West. And so now a hundred and uh, realizing that a hundred years ago, like my father's 100th birthday is this November and he's been dead now for 
13 years. But it's his centennial. So like a hundred years ago, now we're into my father's lifetime. And I'll, I just can't put those two numbers together in my, in my head because what the heck are we talking about? You know, when I see things, when I see things referred to that happened in 1968, even though I know I'm 52, Mm -hmm. it's very hard to understand that the movie Barbarella is also 52. <laughs> well, cause it seems so modern, right? Like the movie Barbarella <laughs> is corny and it's from, you know, it's from a while back. Right. But, but realizing that it's also 50 years old. And when I was in high school, a movie that was 50 years old was from the, from the 1930s. Right. And you know, I just, I just want to interject to support what you're saying. It was not weird for me as a kid to turn on the TV and watch a black and white TV show or watch a black and white movie on our color television. That was not weird. Right. Whether it was, you know, the Munsters, Adam's family, Mr. Ed, you know, uh, Gomer Pyle, whatever it was like, that was the staple of shows that I watched you know, and movies would come on, they'd be in black and white and you wouldn't think, oh, that's an old movie. You'd think that's a black and white movie. You knew it was a little older. You knew it was older, but it didn't, it didn't feel like it was from a different, I'm not saying that, that some of the movies from like the thirties, forties didn't feel like they were from a different time period, but it, most of them, when you watch them, you're like, oh, that, that was probably something my parents watched. Yeah. Not like that's that's too old or that's irrelevant now. But if my kids see a black and white anything, they're like, "What did? Why didn't they put it in color? Why didn't they do it in color?" <laughs> like it's like they don't there's no connection to it. Like but I feel like for us, John, and please don't forget what you were saying because I know I'm interrupting you, but I feel like Bugs Bunny cartoons were the bridge into our parents and maybe in, in a, a kind of a stretch, but almost into our grandparents' generations. We grew up watching Bugs Bunny cartoons, which were from, the, for the most part, the 40s, I believe. And so they had 1940s humor and they were about World War II and they were, you know, you had like Bugs Bunny doing his best Groucho Marx in a lot of them. And these were things that, we could only can, I was only learning about them through the cartoons or like you'd see the different characters, the sort of caricature characters of uh, like Bella Lugosi and other people who would appear in these things. And they would, I didn't know who they were, but I knew that they were like some actor from that time period, but it was a connection because those were very fun, funny cartoons. And now there's nothing. I think modern kids with, with what we have now, there's nothing even really to connect them that much to our parents' generation, even to our earlier generation. Yeah. Maybe star star Wars is, is, um, I mean, this is the other crazy thing. Star Wars is 40 years old or 42 years old. Mm -hmm. 
and somehow it still really resonates. And, um, and I mean, I, I guess, I guess that's the bonkers thing. What is star Wars is 44 years old, uh, this year. And, and if I use the same, if I use this, the same uh, way of computing time, when I was in high school, that would have been something that was made before world war two. Something that was 44 years old would have been, um, you know, the Andrews sisters or something. <laughs> and it's not like I wasn't in high school, not just conscious of, but kind of immersed in some of that because I was a fan of big band jazz and I listened right. to Benny Goodman and, and, um, but you know, my daughter is, is fully on board with star Wars, like knows my, she can, she can rattle off star Wars facts until the sun goes down and then it, uh, it comes up again in the morning. She would still be telling me all about, mm-hmm. um, kyber crystals at, which didn't even exist. I don't think in the first three star Wars is if no, I'm not mistaken. I think, I mean, I think there's that one deleted scene of mm-hmm. Luke kind of building his own lightsaber. And I, I forget which movie this was even from probably the third one, uh, that the entire, our entire audience is just getting angry at me right now, but not our entire audience, the, the subsection of, our yeah, audience. but I, I, and I think he was dorking around with crystals in that, but they did not use the term. I think did that come from the movie or did it even come from the novels first and then work its way into the film? Are the what? novels canon, John? I have zero, 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 anything to say about all that, but, (laughs) but think, think about that. I mean, think like the star Wars, the, the star Wars films precipitated this, this whole enterprise. I mean, basically star Wars is rock and roll in the sense that Mm -hmm. rock and roll started at some point and then took over the culture and, or at least took over a corner of the culture and was this incredibly varied, uh, it's the, it's a terrible analogy, right? Because rock and roll was not owned by a single corporation, but um, but Star Wars to her is as big as the Beatles mm-hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. My my issue right now is that at some point after I found the second pair of binoculars from 1942 I was you know some other time rummaging through bins in some junk shop somewhere and I found a third identical pair of World War II era Navy binoculars also you know, $5 on the, on the hogshead for these, you know, some guy with a, with a green visor sold them to me for (laughs) whatever, probably because he recognizes that there is no market for these. This is anybody that actually uses binoculars is going to have some cool modern 
set that that has five times the the magnification of these old things and weighs one tenth of what they weigh fits into your coat pocket but i was like well i've got to get them because now i have three and it's a collection now i have three and it's a collection and the number of times i've 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 said those words to myself now i have three it's a collection mm mm-hmm. And I, and I feel in some ways that that's the, that, that those three words are some kind of, um, like karmic burden that maybe one of a prior me in a prior life in an alternate universe, um, taunted a genie (laughs) and the genie (laughs) said, Now I have Sorry. three. That's it's good. a collection. And I was like, what? And they, the genie just smiled. Mm-hmm. And the genie had laid a, a, a curse on me that would follow me through, through the universe across, across time and space so that I have this little mantra that runs through my head. I don't know where it came from, you know, but now I have three and it's a collection. We would like to say thank you very much to Feels. Do you experience stress? Do you have anxiety, chronic pain, trouble sleeping at least once a week? You're not alone. Many of us do. Personally, I probably had all of these issues. And the thing that has really helped me was Feels. What is Feels? Let me tell you. Feels is a premium CBD. It's delivered directly to your doorstep. It naturally helps reduce stress, anxiety, pain, and sleeplessness. Again, <laughs> I've used it for all these things and it makes a huge difference. Like it actually works. I promise I wouldn't be telling you about it if it didn't actually work. And here's what you do. You take a few drops of feels under your tongue. You will feel the difference within minutes. The thing to remember about CBD is that finding the right dose is important and everyone's dose is different. So you have to leave room to experiment over the course of a week or so. You may need to take more or less to get the effects that you're after. Now, if you're new to CBD, Feels offers a free CBD hotline that helps your personal experience. It helps you fine tune the right dosage for you. And there are different strengths. You can even get a little flight that they send you three different vials with three different strengths. So you know exactly how much you need and how much you want to take. And Feels works naturally to help you feel better. There's no hangover. There's no addiction. So you can join the Feels community to get Feels delivered to your door every month. This is what I do. You'll save money on every order and you can pause or cancel it at any time you're in control of it but i'll tell you what once you start using it you'll really appreciate it and it's easy to forget to reorder this makes that a thing of the past and that's what i really like about it um so here's the thing feels has me feeling my best every day it can help you too you can become a member today by going to feels.com slash roadwork that's spelled f-e-a-l-s feels.com slash roadwork You'll become a member. You're going to get 50% off your first order with free shipping, which is very nice. So again, feels.com slash roadwork, become a member, 50% automatically taken off your first order with free shipping. Love this stuff. This is my CBD, my go-to. Go check it out. Thanks very much to Feels for making this show possible. And with candlesticks, if you remember brass Mm -hmm. candlesticks, Mm -hmm. that turned into a thing where you couldn't um, you couldn't even play my piano because there were so many candlesticks on it that, that it actually like dampened the keys from the weight of candelabra. 
And so going through a box today in the basement while the window washer is upstairs on a ladder, you know, like gussying the windows up for the first time so that when I'm laying in my new bed and looking out the windows, I'm not looking through a film of sawdust. Yeah. I find these three binoculars, one, two, three. And I go, well, this is my dad's pair. But these other two, I mean, I hear, I hear the, the bell toll. I hear your voice. I hear my mom's voice. I hear all of the, all of my Patreon subscribers, all, all like a million voices all crying out at once. Give the other two away. Keep the one. Give the other two away. Keep the one. Give the other two away. Mm -hmm. It's not a collection. You just found two more of these over the years at thrift stores, and it seemed like $5 wasn't too much to get into them, but now they are not, now they are just junk. They're beautiful junk. Maybe some younger person with a mustache is going to find one of these at a thrift store after you give it away. And they're going to go, cool, and they're going to put it up on their shelf. Maybe maybe a young person who's listening to this show will find it at a thrift store and go, right. I wonder if this is one of those that John was talking about. It's so cool. I might give one to the cool little tattooed um, window washer. But there's a there's a part of me inside that just cannot accept and and I've talked about it on this show with you and on other shows too, how difficult it is for me to quiet down that part of me that's like, no, 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 no. You can't give these away. And I'm at that point in moving into my new house where I have to basically make that decision about everything. And I have to make it about everything. I have to, I have to go over everything four times, pick it up, look at it, go, Oh, I can't give this away. Put it down. Look at it again tomorrow. Accident. As I'm walking through the room, I pick it up again. Oh, wait a minute. No, 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 no. This is too important. This is part of a thing. Hmm. And then the third day I lift it up and I look at it and I go, now you've looked at this three times and there's a reason because if it was actually supposed to stay with you, you wouldn't have to look at it a third time. If you were, if this actually was meaningful, you would know after the first time that this would go into the keep place and instead you put it in a, in a purgatory. Now you're looking at it a third time. That's all the evidence you need. And then I go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, 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 but it's, you know, the thing about it that you don't understand other voice in my head is that this is, <laughs> it's not just that it is here by itself alone. You're right. Alone. It is a, a non-essential item. And it should go in a box and it should go away. But what you fail to appreciate is that it is resonating against that other object over there in a box. You can't see it right now, but that other object contextualizes this one. And so this stays not because it's intrinsically useful, but because it validates and is validated by other items. And I put it down and I, and I go about my business and the thing still sits there on its little pedestal of overturned cardboard boxes. Mm -hmm. 
for me to come along a fifth time and go, just get it in the box. I don't want to talk about it anymore. I don't want to think about it anymore. Just, just put it in the to go box. And honestly, when it goes in the to go box, I never think about it again. And that's the process. And it's, you know, I expend so much energy. You could put a man in space <laughs> with half the, the kerosene that I burn trying to decide whether this soccer trophy that wasn't even mine. I have a, so I have a soccer trophy from, I have several soccer trophies, but I have a soccer trophy from 1975 when, um, when my soccer team, the hurricanes, which was sponsored by King Tuck's uh, tavern. <laughs> King Tuck's was uh -huh. a tavern somewhere in North Seattle. And they sponsored our soccer team, the hurricanes. And it only, when I, when I pulled this trophy out of a box and looked at it, this is from 1975. It was the first time I realized that I had named my band, the Western state hurricanes in 1998 and I'd also been, and my childhood soccer team from 1974 through 1977 was also the hurricanes. It had, I'd never made that connection until five days ago when I pulled this trophy out and went hurricanes. What? Like, I, of course I always knew it was the hurricanes. I just had never, I'd never been standing in a room where on one side of me, there were boxes of Western state hurricanes records. And on the other side, there were boxes of trophies from the, from King Tuck's hurricanes. So I'm looking at this little trophy and I reach down into the box, which has other trophies, including my second place, um, for boys, junior racers, in 1981, um, second place trophy for giant slalom for the whole season, my, my crowning achievement as a ski racer. And I pull out an identical trophy to the, to my 1975 King Tuck's hurricanes. I think also like second place in the league trophy. I pull out an identical one and I read the, the little engraving. Because mine says King Tuck's Hurricane, second place, John Roderick. Uh, the second one says King Tuck's Hurricane's second place coach, Emilio Gonzalez. And I'm like, Coach Gonzalez? Why do I have Coach Gonzalez's trophy? And also, where has it been low these 45 years? Because I have zero recollection of having this <laughs> trophy. I swear to you that my trophy, my King Tuck's Hurricanes trophy, has been somewhat prominently displayed in all of my childhood bedrooms. Because as I've said many times before, I did not win that many awards. I don't, I don't have that many trophies. I have a lot of white participation ribbons. You know, I didn't get the yellow third place ribbon. I got the white ribbon, which was thanks for showing up to the, to the track meet. Nice try. Mm -hmm. 
But I have that ski racing poster. I'm sorry. I have that ski racing trophy where I got second place in 1981. And I have three or four soccer trophies from childhood, one from the boys club, you know, and they were, we were, we were always second in the league and I was a fullback. So I never scored a goal in, in five, six years of, of childhood soccer, but I had these trophies. I had this trophy shelf my entire childhood. Oh, I also have the, the, the trophy from when I won the pine box derby and I won the Pine Box Derby because they put me in the wrong age group. Mm. Oh, so you were like a red shirt. Well, the thing, the thing was, did I ever tell you this story? It was at the YMCA. I showed up with my little hand-carved Pine Box Derby car. And, you know, my parents were divorced. My dad didn't live with me. My dad didn't know how to use tools. But, and my mom did, but my mom knew how to use tools to fix things that were broken. My mom never like whittled a stick, right? She never picked up a, a knife and whittled a piece of wood because when she was growing up, that was what Tom Sawyer did. You know, she was busy, she was busy, whatever, washing the laundry on a hand crank or I don't know what she was doing, rendering lard. She was not sitting around with a, with a piece of straw in her mouth and whittling a stick. So when it came time to build my pine box derby racer, I had no adult who had ever built anything out of wood to guide me. And I had no tools except my boy scout pocket knife. And that's it. Maybe I guess I had a Phillips head screwdriver. Anyway, I made this pine box derby racer out of that block of wood that they give you. And I mean, I still have the car. I, ha- I like hand carved it with a pocket knife and all the other kids at the pine box derby, their dads had tools. Mm. The, the, the cars had little lead weights on them. They'd been tested. They'd been shaped to look like, you know, most of the wood had been taken off. They were sleek. They were aerodynamic. And mine was, uh, was just, you know, I had just basically sat with my Boy Scout pocket knife until I carved the edges off of the wood block. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but you know, like hand carved it. So that it's not smooth. It's, it's, uh, you can see every knife mark. And then I painted it. I painted the car itself with, um, yellow paint from like a model airplane kit. And then I painted the number on the side, 13, and I painted the cockpit with red fingernail polish that I took out of the bathroom. And I was very proud of it. You're very much like a MacGyver kind of figure in this uh, story, aren't you? Well, I'm what I am is little. Uh, I'm a little 70s latchkey kid with no male role models. There you go. That too. Whose, <laughs> whose mother worked <laughs> 10 hours a day as a computer. Right. Um. So I show up at the YMCA and I, you know, and nobody's with me, you know, I, I got dropped off at it or something. And I'm mm-hmm. standing there with my car at the check-in and the woman behind the folding table says, you know, are you, uh, like, are you in the youth group or are you a wise guy? 
And at that age, nine years old, if you asked me if I was a wise guy, I would say, yeah, I'm a wise guy. Are you kidding me? You're going to give me that as an option? Yeah, I'm a wise guy. And she was like, good. Okay. Wise guy here. It's, you know, like, and she pointed over to where the wise guys were lining up. Mm -hmm. Well, what she meant was that there was a group of teenage preteens or, you know, the oldest kids in the YMCA youth program were called wise guys, YMCA guys, the Y Uh. this was, you know, everybody called it the Y and these were the wise Mm, guys. I don't like that. I don't don't like things like that. But, but I, but it had fooled me. I didn't know that that was true either. I just thought she was saying like, are you a wise guy? And I was like, yes, I am. And in fact, when I answered like, why, yes, I am in my best nine-year-old smarm, right? the woman gave no recognition. I, and I, and I remember this clearly because I played it back over and over at the time, trying to figure out what had happened. Um, she not only showed no recognition, but she identified herself as a, as a woman with no sense of humor because when a nine-year-old is like, well, yes, I'm a wise guy. And you just give him a blank stare. You're like one of those moms that's dead inside, right? (laughs) You're like a seventies mom who's, who wears her hair up in a handkerchief or, you know, in a, like a, like a mod, a cool Rhoda, uh, headscarf. But you don't get it. You don't get what's you, you don't get what's happening, man. You know, you're you're the Mr. Jones in this story, right? Mom, old old mom who's now probably long dead. But so I line up and I realize right away, and you know, it's the Pine Box Derby, right? You got the big ramp; it goes all the way across the gymnasium. There's a thousand kids at this thing, and um, and I line up and and. I know immediately something's wrong because I'm nine and everyone else in the, in the line is 13 Mm. and they're looking at me and I'm looking at them. But the thing was, Dan, I was always a big kid. Did you look, do you feel like you looked older? We had a big kid in my class. I'm thinking fifth, sixth grade. And he was like adult sized. He was our age, but he was so big that everyone called him uncle Eric. His name was Eric. Uncle Eric. Oh, wow. Uncle and he Eric. was, he was a good, he was a good 12 inches taller than the tallest other kid in the class. I mean, he was yeah. just big and he was so big. We just called him uncle Eric. Uncle Eric, if you're listening, just kind of, you know, send me an email. I would love to see how you're doing these days. Uncle Eric. Uncle Eric. He was super nice guy. Very quiet. Sure. Didn't need to talk. He was just, he's so big. No, he had the, he had the commanding presence of, a, right. of, an, of an uncle. That's right. Well, no, I wasn't that big and, and I was visibly smaller than all the other kids, but I was big enough that it looked not completely, it didn't look insane, right? I looked like I could be a small 13 year old rather than a large nine year old, but they were all 13 year olds, they knew who, they knew the difference between a 13 year old and a nine year old. So they're just looking at me, like looking down their noses at me, wondering like, what the heck, how did this kid get in here? And you know, and I was a nerd. So I'm like, Hey fellas, you know, ha ha ha, we, and, hello fellow teenagers. Yeah. And they were just not, <laughs> they were not having it. And so, you know, I think, I think we went first for some reason. 
the teens. Mm-hmm. And we got up there and these teens all had these, you know, they all knew how to do things, right? So they had these cars that looked incredible. Um, cool paint jobs. They'd been, they'd been woodworked. So they kind of looked like cars or at least, you know, they looked like wedges. At least they had Mm. weights on them and stuff. They were like all super hot and we put up our cars and this had happened to me several times in life where I had made an error. It was an honest error. I had said wise guys when I meant when I didn't, when I, because I didn't understand what she was saying. But then I didn't correct the error. I didn't go over and say, um, I, I'm, I said wise guys, but I'm actually a kid. Um, it happened, it happened several times. There was so the this time. Is spelled w, how do you spell wise guys again? Y apostrophe S. Just like that. Like the YMCA is wise guys. Yeah. 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 Um, you know, I was in a cross country race in high school where, um, you know, the, the it was, we were, in Alaska, the cross-country races often just went out into the woods and you ran around on on trails and nobody could see where anybody was. You were just out in the forest. Right. And, you know, you're doing a 10K race or something. You're out there for a long time. And I was not a good cross-country runner. And, I, you know, there was the cross-country race where I stopped to climb a tree and pick up a bird's nest. And then... As I round, you know, and I'm you know, carried a bird's nest for a while. And as I, as I rounded the last corner, um, these guys started going past me really fast that were in really good shape and giving me super weird looks. And so I started sprinting and, and I came in, you know, in the top five at the end of the race. And what had happened was that I'd been gone so long that they'd started the second heat and the second heat had done the race course and had la- had lapped me. I mean, the, my heat was done. Then they waited 10 minutes and then started the second heat. And they were coming into the finish line as I was. And so I was, I was up on the leaderboard. And, and everybody in my school couldn't believe it. They were like, what? How did you, like Mr. Last Place, you know, come in fourth or whatever. And I was like, I have zero idea. Like nobody was more surprised than I was. And it took 20 minutes for them to straighten out that I had started in the first heat. And then that was very embarrassing to everybody involved. Mm. And it wasn't even embarrassing to me because what can you say? Like I started in the first heat and I finished fourth in the second heat. Right. Um, it was just surprising that I, you know, that I finished that high. But so we put up our, we put up our pine box derby cars at the top of this big ramp. And this is 1970s pine box derby. So this was a big event and the gate opens and all off our cars go. And my car just schools everybody. It goes right to the lead and finishes, you know, three lengths ahead of the next closest car and it looks like it was made it looks like it was made by someone who lived in the amazon and you described a car to them (laughs) like and it looks like it was painted with a paint that you made from chewing up berries Uh 
and spitting them in, you know, mixing them with lye. Right. And nobody, so of course I won. And so all eyes are on me and I'm standing there like a weirdly small kid, quote unquote teenager Mm -hmm. with a, with a car that does not compute. It would, my car wouldn't hack it over with the, with the, the six year olds because they had dads that helped them. Right. You know, my, my car looked like, it looked like I had chewed it. It looked like it was made by a beaver. (laughs) And I understood my mistake, but Mm -hmm. I didn't know what to say. Right. And now that I'd won, it was going to be really embarrassing. And so I didn't say anything. And I watched the, I stayed there for the whole day, watched the entire rest of the Pine Box Derby. Um, it was a, you know, there were. There were kids after kids, there were races after races, heats and heats and heats. And at the end of the day, I stood on the podium with all these kids from different age groups with my first place trophy as the, as the number one wise guy and all the other wise guys, you know, they were all teenagers. So they bailed out of there a long time before there was nobody, none of those guys were standing around watching but all the parents, all the other kids, kids my age. And, it, you know, it was just this, it was a tremendous incongruity. Well, so I, I was already replaying what had happened then. And I right. replayed it a thousand times over the course of my life because I still have the trophy and I still have the car. Really? And I. We, you're going to send me a picture of this thing. For years, I displayed them together. But then. At some point, somebody was cleaning or somebody was, some bull in a china shop was walking through my little trophy case and someone knocked the trophy off Hmm. and the trophy was, you know, kind of gray marble base and then a pine box derby car on top in a like swoopy kind of gold, like it looked very space age, this, this car Mm. and it, you know, it says first place on it. Well, they knocked it off the shelf and it broke the car and it broke it in one of those places where there's just no way to repair it because it's kind of cantilevered. And if you put glue on it, you just, you can't tape it in that position long enough for the glue to dry. And I think I, I did the other terrible thing, which is that I tried to put glue on it. It didn't hold, but now the glue has gunked up the, the join. Hmm. So even if I could get glue to hold, it wouldn't fit together anymore because there's a layer of gunky glue. Oh, I see. So now, Dan, what I have is my Pine Box Derby car and a broken trophy. Hmm. Well, what do you do with a broken trophy? I mean, I can't get rid of this trophy. This trophy is like, and honestly, I don't know if I've ever told this story before. If I have, if I have, then there are people in the world who share this with me already. Now that I have told it to you, you know, our, our listeners 
also now are on this journey with me. Yes. This freaking pine box derby wise guys <laughs> story. Mm-hmm. So the, you know, so the trophy, but, but up until that point, up until the, this moment that I've told the story, that trophy and that car have been with me my whole life and no one else has known it because I never told the story to anybody. I never told the story to my mom. I never, because I was embarrassed. I was going to tell her that I, that I, because what it, what it really is, is that it's not a, it's not a legit trophy because I was in the wrong heat. And the fact that I was not, I was not in the wrong age group because I was older than the other kids. I was, you know, these kids should have beaten me by a thousand points. And it was just a weird, I have zero idea that I made no changes to the running gear. I did not even put, I did not even put four and one oil on the axles. It was just, it was just the nail polish. That's the only thing I can think of. It's the only right. thing that was different. It was the nail polish on the number 13 and the fact that the car had been shaped by a, by a young beaver. <laughs> but, but I've <sighs> carried these things around and you know, when I broke the trophy, my mom was like, well, why do you have a broken trophy? Throw that in the garbage. And I was like, I can't throw that in the garbage, but I couldn't tell her the story. Oh, she Who didn't else understand I- why it meant so much to you. Well, she doesn't understand why anything means anything to me because she's like you. She, everything she owns, she could put into a, mm-hmm. she could put into a Tupperware. Right. I mean, the things that matter to her, she owns other things, right? She has spatulas, but if you were like, do you need these spatulas? She'd throw them right in the garbage. She's got no, like I've had this spatula for, uh, for 30 years, nothing, whatever right. spatula she had 30 years ago, she got rid of 28 years ago. Yeah. Like, uh, like a normal person, like a normal person, I guess. So I found that trophy today, but the trophy that belonged to my coach, this is like one of these Berenstain bears moments where I just feel profoundly gaslit by myself. Somehow, since 1975, I have been schlepping my coach's trophy and I have, I have this super faint memory of the award ceremony. And it happened, it happened at a, at a furniture store, a furniture store in Edmonds, Washington. And it was called Darcy's. It was a, it was one of those old furniture stores where, um, you went, it was like two stories tall and they just had, um, room after room after room that was set up like, like a, like a living room. It wasn't a thing like you see furniture stores now where it's just, it's just a universe of couches where it just walk through right. and it's just couch, 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 couch. Right. This was, um, 
hang on, I'm going to ask my mom, what was the name of the furniture store in Edmonds? Okay, we'll see what she says. Darcy's, I think, or Dorsey's, maybe. Mm. Um, this was a thing where they would sell furniture sets. So you would, you know, that you'd you'd move along kind of like you do through IKEA, mm. and you'd come to a couch, a chair, a table, a lamp, a you know, a, a love seat. You know, the whole thing, a, a coffee table. It would all be set up, and then you would move twenty feet down, and there'd be another one. And somehow this place, I think it was Dorsey's Furniture. Dorsey's? Has she not um, written me back yet? No, she hasn't written me back. Um, yeah, pretty sure it was Dorsey's. So you could rent Dorsey's out for events because it was such a huge building that it actually had I, the, none of this makes any sense. The more I, the, the more words that I say, the more it sounds like I'm having a stroke, <laughs> but this furniture store had a, had like a banquet hall okay. in the middle of it. And you could have, and you, and it was a place that you could have a rotary club meeting or have your Knights of Columbus meeting. And it was, you know, it was after hours so you could have your event in the, in the big hall, but also then you could run around the furniture store and the lights were all off. It was like the greatest place to have a Cub Scout meeting or a, or a, uh, like a, a soccer awards banquet. Because, you know, after, after the dinner, after the award ceremony, ceremony was over and the parents were all sitting around doing what 70s parents did, which was smoking and drinking, the kids could all run around the furniture store, play hide and seek, or just go crazy. You know, it was like, it was, we didn't have laser tag yet, but it's what it felt like. And I have this recollection of this award ceremony where we got called up and were presented with our trophy. And at the end of the night, when everybody's packing up and, you know, the kids are all, all gacked out on cake and <laughs> grownups are all half buzzed and, and ashing cigarettes on each other. I, and the, I swear to you, this may be, I may just be picturing this out of some catalog of stock images, but, but I remember the, the table, the folding table that had, when we first arrived, it had all the trophies lined up and it was just fantastic looking. It's just covered with trophies. At the end of the night, all the trophies are gone. They've all been awarded. And there was one trophy left and it was the coach's trophy. And I took it. And I don't know whether someone said, the coach left already what are we going to do with this trophy? And I said, I'll get it to him or, or what? So that's the last memory I have. And I'm only, I'm only finding that memory by really searching. I've never seen that coach's trophy since until I opened the box five days ago. And there it is right next to its matching trophy with my name on it. 
right next to the broken Pine Box Derby trophy, right next to the second place Boys Junior Racers Giant Slalom trophy. Same box as three binoculars. There's also like a piccolo flute in there. I I don't know where that <laughs> piccolo flute came from. Yeah. Very cool flute though. And the mystery of where that, because I know for a fact I was not displaying the coach's trophy on my trophy shelf all these years. 46 years I've had this coach, I've had this coach trophy and never put the pieces together. And what about the, about my heightened sense enabled me to see it now for the first time. Like I'm, I'm looking at these things and I'm picking them up and I'm going, what is this? Am I keeping this? This has been with me forever. Am I keeping this ski trophy? Of course. Am I keeping this pine box derby trophy, even though it's totally broken? Yes, absolutely. I am. Am I keeping this soccer trophy? Yes. Am I keeping this soccer trophy? What the hell is this soccer trophy? How have I never done that in all these decades? Today is the, you know, this week is the first time I've ever realized that this, that I've been, that this thing, and I, uh, Dan, it has to have been sitting on my trophy shelf all these years. I just, just somehow not seen, unseen. Unseen. It was just up there with this collection of five trophies that I'd ever won. And one of them wasn't even mine. It belonged to the coach. I was supposed to give it back to him, I think. <laughs> like, it's a debt to the universe I have. I need to go, I need to see if that coach is still alive, and if so, get that trophy to him. 